0: The following may contain offensive language, adult humor, and or content that some viewers may find offensive. The views and opinions expressed by any one speaker does not explicitly or necessarily reflect or represent those of Mark Radelidge or W2M Network. Please listen with caution or don't listen at all. To On Trial, starring Mark Rattlidge, also starring Sean Comer. Hope you're ready, Hollywood, because you're on trial. All right. rise, court is now in session. The Honorable Vincent K. McMahon presiding. That was for you, Pat. Tonight on the docket is John Carpenter's They Live, starring WWE professional wrestler, late professional wrestler, the rowdy one, Rowdy Roddy Piper. Uh, they Live is a 1988 American satirical science fiction action horror film. Written and directed by John Carpenter, based on the 1963 short story, Eight O'Clock in the Morning by Ray Nelson. Uh, In addition to Roddy Piper, it stars Keith David and Meg Foster. The film follows an unnamed drifter who discovers through special sunglasses that the ruling class are aliens concealing their appearance and manipulating people to consume, breed, and conform to the status quo via subliminal messages in mass media. The film was a minor success at the time of its release. It had a $3 million budget, made $13 million in North America, and initially received negative reviews from critics who lambasted social commentary, writing, and acting. However, like Carpenter's other films that later gained a cult following, and experienced a significantly more favorable critical reception. It is now regarded by many as a largely underrated work. The film has also entered popular culture and notably had a lasting effect on street art. While its nearly 60-minute alley Six-minute alley brawl between the protagonists has made appearances on the all-time list of the best fight scenes. And here to kick ass and chew bubblegum, ladies and gentlemen, he is perpetually all out of bubblegum, Mr. Toxic Masculinity. Very nice. That is fantastic. Pat Mullen, my brother from another mother and boxing aficionado. How do you do, sir? I'd like
1: to thank my mom for getting me this shirt a couple months back as a birthday gift, so thank you, Mom, very much. I'm great, everybody. It's it's very rare that I I get to hear an episode on trial that I enjoy uh, because usually it's either movies I hate that are being covered or somebody I hate to listen to covering them. So it's going to be fun because this one's my wheelhouse and I'm talking about it and we're talking about 1988 seminal classic They Live. Oh, I'm so excited for this. So many personal uh, stories that come from this movie and my times around it. It's just, ah, it's... This is so good. I got that warm, fuzzy feeling inside that I really hope is just that and not something more sinister.
0: This is the uh, 34th anniversary of the movie's uh, appearance in North America in the box office. One of the reasons why we're, we're doing it when we're doing it, um, it came out November 4th, as a matter of fact, 1988. And we planned this a year ago. I was like, Pat, whatever the anniversary for They Live is, and it turned out it was November. So I'm like, all right, I'm planning this for November of 2022. We discussed it in 2021. So it's finally here. We're, we're, Pat doesn't get to come on a lot. But when he does, it's for something that really tickles his fancy. So, and, why is it? That-
1: I, I, I got to say something, man.
0: You oh, know, here we uh, go. We, we've been
1: talking here, and uh, I just want to say it's, it's very rare you come upon a man in your word. And uh, you said a year ago that uh, we'd be doing this here show. And uh, I just want to say in front of everybody, I, I thank you and I love you very much for it, man.
0: Love you too, Roddy. Listen, you know. <laughs> What's funny about that is when I, and, and I've said this now a couple of times over the last few months, but when I went through like the great schedule purge, when I when, when my wife through, pushed me kicking and screaming into polyamory and I had to start like making time to date, you can talk about that openly now, um, I, sorry, okay. kicking and screaming, you know. Well, hence
1: our uh, <laughs> preamble there before we started the show. Yeah. I um, thought that
0: was just for me. Apparently not no no i'm open about it now speaking of open um when we agreed mutually to (laughs) to enter into this relationship dynamic one of the one of the things was even before that it was i was doing this way too much um you know i was like up like seven days a week at one point and then it was like well okay i gotta make time to meet new people and go out and do things and make time for my wife and kids and everything else so so over the summer i had cut down to two I, i had cut a lot of shows a lot of stuff I promised I would do with people. I'm like, I can't do this anymore. Gave away an entire show to Alexis Haina. like TV party. You're, I'm done with television. I can't do this anymore. I can't watch ten hours of television a week. So I haven't I seen the ratings yet on that one, there, son. Leave her alone, you bully. Um, so, but this was one of the few that made the cut. Is the point this? This one I was like, no, 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 I don't, I don't cut Pat's Day Live show. First of all, I think Pat would fly down to Florida and punch me in the face if I did. Like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> um, put so the, the glasses but, on! Yeah, really. Just put the glasses on. I don't know why I'm doing this, Pat. Just put them on. Um, I would never have cut this show. I actually, I've never seen They Live. I that watched was, They, Li- I yeah, I watched they Live still, for the first like, time. Yeah, I watched They Live for the first time in preparation for this show. It was one of those ones where I knew it was a Roddy Piper thing. I knew it was like like his biggest movie to date at the time. But for whatever reason, I was like, ah, I'm just not interested. But, but even then, I'm just
1: shocked because I, I remember this at least up until around like ninety two, ninety three, mm-hmm. being a fixture on like the Channel Eleven, you know, Saturday night movie or Sunday afternoon movie a lot of the time. Like, and we've talked about how these are movies we grew up on, in then right. you know, in the New York area, you had these movies pretty regularly on, you know channel 11 channel 2 you know etc or if Mm -hmm. you were you know one of the the elite class and you had hbo or cinemax or showtime you would see a lot on one of those um
0: yeah i for whatever reason i was the iconic imagery of roddy piper the drifter the unnamed drifter walking around like the flannel shirt with the shotgun that line I have come here to kick ass and shoot bubblegum and I'm all out of bubblegum. That is something he said as a wrestler. That had to have either been improvised or like a like a script suggestion. There's no there's no way that independently was written to this movie without Roddy Piper's suggestion.
1: He he had written down a lot of his best promo stuff after mm-hmm. he had used it and rewatched like the tapes back of stuff. Right. And he had this, as told by John Carpenter, Roddy had this green notebook of a lot of these phrases and whips mm-hmm. he would use and carpenter happened to be you know thumbing through it to get an idea of roddy and who he was and what his work style is and Mm -hmm. he saw that line and he was like man i gotta
0: figure out a way to get him to use this line in this movie because it's too good so the the iconic imagery never mind like the iconic alien imagery that is very reminiscent of something like mars attacks Mm -hmm. um it definitely has that like 1950s alien feel to it which is one of the great things about this movie but the the iconic Roddy Piper walking into the bank with the shotgun saying I have come here to kick ass and chew bubblegum and I am all out of bubblegum and lighting that motherfucker up. Like I remember that. If I if I, I never saw the movie, but I remember that scene because that scene, that clip would get used in commercials and stuff. Like that was the that was the hook to get people to watch this movie, and it's very effective. That's like knowing the, <laughs> the line, I'll be back from Terminator, and having never seen Terminator, but everybody yeah. knows the line and what yeah, it's like, right? And yeah, and they, they all know it's Terminator, they know it's Schwarzenegger, they know nothing else about that movie, exactly. So, what do you know about the production for this thing? Um, what, what do you know about the history of it? So,
1: Carpenter always liked to like, he was an avid reader, he read a lot of like Ray Bradbury stuff, like that, and he'd always wanted to do. You know, uh, movies or movies based around a lot of that kind of uh, writing and and showmanship type authoring. Um, you know, hence like Assault on Precinct Thirteen mm-hmm. uh, that Carpenter had done that really was kind of his like, hello, I I'm here, everybody. Before he got to Halloween, and he kind of conceived of this movie in a very short window of time,
0: mm-hmm.
1: partly based on like you mentioned. There's a short story, Eight O'clock in the Morning, by Ray Nelson about a guy who. Figures out he's been hypnotized and, at, at, you know, is in his trance and then tries to wake everybody up out of it. But unfortunately, it's the stroke of eight. Uh, you know, it's a whole thing. Read the story. Um, but he had that and he was looking at the world and really kind of from that left wing filmmaker school. Uh, it was very anti capitalist, you know, from the generation Carpenter was where there was the anti Vietnam movement um, and very anti Reagan and Reagan's staunch, you know, family values, you know, et cetera, et cetera, type stuff. Um, so what he saw at the same time was kind of what a lot of people felt was runaway capitalism, where there was no regulation <laughs> on capitalist practices. And what it did was result in either there being an extremely wealthy class and an extremely poor class and no middle class in between type thing. Right. Um, and, and he kind of wrote a lot of this in response to, to what he felt was the movement towards that. I think he, he openly referred to it and people who derided the Reagan administration, derided it as the Reagan revolution. Um, you know, and and there's that's a whole other podcast you do on another day for another debate uh about sure. that. I'll keep you know, I'll keep it to that. Um but it devolved it evolved a lot out of Carpenter's own personal feelings on that, how it mixes in with you know this short story influence that he talked about. Um and he decided because he had a lot of stroke at this point, because even though his movies were more cult hits. He could do them for low budgets and achieve big results, kind of almost like Roger right. Corman.
0: So this one, was really, we were talking about this. We were talking about this on Tuesday. but that's sort of the model for horror in general, where yeah. you, you shoot it on a shoestring, and if it hits, it usually hits big, and it's monster profit.
1: Yeah, because you know John had also had some films that didn't hit that were made for a higher budget. Um,
0: mm-hmm. But you look
1: at the stuff where John had to really stretch his money, and that's when you got. Escape from New York which was very you know positively received Halloween another, talk-
0: I, I was going to say John Car- there's a lot of John Carpenter's movies that are monumental in terms of like influence on film culture Escape from New York inspired what a thousand different you know lookalikes we talked about this I think the last time you and I talked we did how was...
1: comes to Frogtown It's you know Yeah
0: <laughs> another, another Roddy Piper movie about you know, Escape from New York inspired an entire like generation of lookalikes, and then obviously Halloween is a uh, bellwether for the horror genre.
1: Yeah, and so this is part of a two-picture deal that Carpenter had gotten with uh, Universal after he had done uh, Big Trouble in Little China in 1986. So the first movie he did under this deal was Prince of Darkness, which uh, there's a Even among Carpenter fans, it's very uh, divisive. Um, There's people who love Prince of Darkness and love the concept behind it. There's people who think the execution is sloppy and it's not a well-balanced film. Um, I tend to fall more into that camp. But because he had the secondary film to do on this and he had done – he'd basically written a lot of this while making Prince of Darkness. um, And kind of came to the conclusion in late 1987 how he wanted to shoot this and what he wanted to do. And – Carpenter had met Piper about a year or so earlier at WrestleMania 3, which is film which was in you know Pontiac, Michigan, the outskirts of Detroit. and Carpenter liked Roddy's quality. Roddy had done two films that year um, that were waiting for release, so he'd done some acting. and Carpenter kind of looked at this guy where he, I think his words exactly were Roddy's face has life written all over it versus actors yeah. Um, You know, and if if you know Roddy's life, yeah, Roddy had a life to that point. Um, And so he always envisioned something he could try to do with Piper as as this very different type of lead. And that's when all the pieces started falling together into this to make this character, which is partially based around Roddy. We lost Mark momentarily. But this character based around Roddy. And this narrative that Carpenter wanted to tell. And since he had the like didn't actually in
0: like the Pacific Northwest and like at like fourteen or something like that.
1: Roddy, Roddy turned professional as a wrestler in nineteen seven at sixteen in Winnipeg, Canada, for twenty five dollars Canadian and then was touring the United States and Kansas City immediately after. And, you know, before that he was a teenage runaway living on the streets and a lot of other stuff. And yeah, Roddy's had a life. But um Because Carpenter had already done Prince of Darkness and he had this secondary film, he envisioned a lot of this while doing that. He had had his meeting with Roddy at WrestleMania 3 and wanted to do something with him and felt like because he had this deal locked in for this picture already, he could do it. And that's how a lot of these pieces came to be. All
0: right. So let's talk about what this movie, what happens in this movie. Um, A homeless drifter credited as nada. Comes to Los Angeles in search of a job, while well, out in the streets, he sees a street preacher warning that they have recruited the rich and powerful to control humanity. Nada finds employment at a construction site and is befriended by the co-worker Frank, who invites him to live in a shantytown soup kitchen led by a man named Gilbert. That night, a hacker, taker, a hacker takes over a television broadcast claiming that scientists have discovered signals that are enslaving the population and keeping them in a dreamlike state, and that the only way to stop it is to shut off the signal at its source. Those watching the broadcast complain of headaches. Nada secretly follows Gilbert and the preacher into a nearby church and discovers them meeting with a group that includes the hacker. He sees scientific equipment and cardboard boxes inside. Nada is discovered by the blind preacher and escapes. The town and church are both destroyed in a police raid in the same night and the hacker and preacher are beaten by the riot police. The following day, Nada retrieves one of the boxes from the church and takes a pair of sunglasses from it, hiding it hiding the rest in a trash can nada discovers that the sunglasses make the world appear monochrome but also reveals subliminal messages in the media to consume reproduce and conform the glasses also reveal that many people are actually aliens with skull-like faces when nada mocks an alien woman at a supermarket she alerts other aliens via a wristwatch like device nada leaves but is confronted by two alien police officers he kills them and steals their weapons (laughs) nada enters a bank where he sees that several of the employees and customers are aliens he kills several aliens with a shotgun and escapes, but t- taking Cable 54 employee Holly, Holly Thompson hostage. At Holly's home, Nada tries to get her to try on the glasses, but she knocks him out of the window and down a hill and calls the police. The next day, Nada returns to the alleyway and retrieves the sunglasses from a g- garbage truck before Frank meets Nada to give him his paycheck. Nada tries to get Frank to put the glass- put on the glasses, but Frank thinks Nada's a murderer and wants nothing to do with him. Frank and Nada get into a long and violent brawl. Yep, the infamous six-minute brawl. After which Frank is too tired to prevent Nada from putting on the sunglasses on him. After seeing the aliens in the flying saucer, Frank goes into hiding with Nada. Frank and Nada run into government at the meeting. They are given contact lenses to replace the sunglasses, and learn that the aliens are using global warming to make Earth more like their own planet and are depleting the Earth's resources for their own gain. They also learn that aliens have been bribing humans to become collaborators. Uh, promoting them to positions of power. Holly arrives at the meeting, apologizing to Nada. Then the meeting is raided by the police, and the vast majority of those present are killed, with the survivors, including Frank, Nada, and Holly scattering. Nada and Frank are cornered in an alley, but they accidentally activate an alien wristwatch, opening a portal through which they escape. The portal takes them to the alien spaceport, where they discover a meeting of aliens and human collaborators celebrating the elimination of the terrorists. They are approached by a former drifter... Briefly met in the shantytown, now a collaborator who gives them a tour of the facility. He leads them to the basement of Cable 54, the source of the signal, which is protected by armed guards. Nada and Frank find Holly and fight their way to the transmitter on the roof, but Holly kills Frank, revealing that she, too, is a human collaborator. Nada kills Holly and destroys the transmitter and is fatally wounded by aliens in a helicopter. Nada gives the aliens the middle finger as he dies. There he does. With the transmitter destroyed, humans all over the world are free from their dreamlike state and discover the aliens hiding amongst them. So, okay, this is On Trial, where we debate the merits of the film. Someone takes the positive and someone takes the negative. I don't want to get beaten up by Pat, so (laughs) I don't want to be too hard on this movie. But um, it's not that I don't like it. And I do do think thematically, um, one of the things that was said in our group chat was... The themes of this movie are as relevant today as they were back in 1988 that is very true this this is a timeless movie this is a movie that i could absolutely show in 10 years 20 years 30 years and i think um i i, I think it will it won't have aged you know obviously special effects being what they are that'd be one thing but i think in terms of what's presented on screen i think is timeless and certainly the discussion that this engenders is also um pacing there's some issues here this is a ver- this movie is approximately an hour and a half it f- does not feel an hour and a half it feels longer the first oh, well got 40 minutes I feel like 30 to 40 minutes there's a lot of establishing is utterly unnecessary you don't it's important to build the world of the shantytown on the homeless um but it doesn't take as long as they do the, it takes forever to get. What here's what we want in "They Live." We want Roddy Piper to shoot aliens. He needs. We need to see the homeless. We need to see the dis, you know the disparate classes, the very very rich and the very very poor. We need to meet our drifter. We need to meet Frank. We need to um, have him find the glasses, and we need him to kill his first alien. That needs to happen quickly, and it does not. It takes forever there's so much time just establishing like the homeless shantytown town <laughs> it takes forever to get to do that bank scene that bank scene's the best part of the movie and it takes forever to get there and then after that look i love roddy piper and and far be it for me to disparage the good goddamn name of roddy piper yes he looks the part And yes, he has the physical presence and he has obviously that professional wrestling charisma that most actors wish they had. Also not a good actor. He's just not. He's really struggling with this. Keith David is doing his level best to drag him along. But there there are some times, and he's not helped by the other woman in this picture. Oh, God, what is her name? Meg Uh, Foster. Meg Foster. I don't know where they dug her up. But she's not great either, and I don't know if she was just struggling with the material or what. But their scene in her apartment is fucking awful, dude. Like it, it, he is uh, he is acting apart. He is acting across a fucking mannequin crossed with a salmon. Like I don't know what was going on with her, but she looked. Uh, did I think they, she
1: left it all. Uh, I think she left it all in Masters of the Universe as Evil Inn.
0: That's what, That's where she's from. That that. That tells me a lot. <laughs> Oi, fucking vey, dude! Like she, she's just awful. And that—I mean, she's okay later on in the movie, but like, there's supposed to be some sexual chemistry between her and Roddy Piper. There's none. I've seen more sexual chemistry between two penguins, fucking. Like it's it's bad, man. Her line delivery is like. Do you feel like they like?
1: They, they're not necessarily audio, but do you feel like they kind of like audio sweetened or deepened
0: her voice a little bit with these? Maybe lines? I was thinking, like, did they shoot her in a different fucking room than Roddy Piper? Like, did yeah, they, the acoustics did they of her on the voice? Same?
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. I
0: killed you. Dude, first, yeah, first of all, like, I, I I expected her in the middle of her dialogue with Roddy Piper to go start going a wee mo we a wee mo we onion the junk, you know? <laughs> Like, it was so deep. Like, what is happening here? Um, we finally, we, we get past that. We get past the bank. Look, I am not going to sit here and tell you a six minute fight scene is overkill, but <laughs> I, I absolutely can understand them wanting to leave that in there. I want to see the fight between the editor and John Carpenter because someone had to have told John Carpenter. It is not necessary to do six minutes of this. Okay. But, but now, two things, right? Mm-hmm. One, you have already
1: derided the, the acting ability of <laughs> Roderick George Toombs. Sure. But there's something he excels at that he was noticed for prior to
0: this. Maybe space it out, then. Maybe not do it all in six minutes.
1: Okay, but at the same time,
0: mm-hmm. if
1: this movie is not known for
0: kick-ass and chew bubblegum, what is this movie known for? I hear you. And, and and I don't have like I think if I think if somebody were to remake this movie, right? This obviously like gets cribbed by movies like Independence Day. Almost like almost you know, down to like, oh, they're terraforming the planet, like that kind of a thing. There's a lot here that I think you can work with and focus on. Maybe take less of the focus off of him and put a little bit more of it on the aliens and kind of show what's going on with the aliens. There's a lot of like... Does Kanye West
1: play the John Nada role?
0: (laughs) Um, No, we're going to get James Franco. But James (laughs) Franco playing multiple parts. (laughs) Um, He he plays Roddy Piper's part, he plays Keith Davis' part, and he plays Meg Foster's part. Um, He, He might do well as Meg Foster. He might. I guess what I'm saying is there's a lot of focus on Roddy Piper and what he's doing and maybe take some of that away when you remake this and do it focus a little bit more on the aliens space. Some of the fighting out. Like I think you can, I think you can have a good fight scene. I just don't think it needed to be fucking six minutes long. Um, lastly, and then I'll let you come to this film's defense and put me in my place. I, It's just like, there there's a there's a discussion to be had about what this movie is talking about um I wish it had spent a little bit more time on that I wish there was there's a lot there's a lot of Roddy Piper trying to convince people to put the glasses on um but not a lot of discussion about how we got to a place where human collab there are human collaborators with these aliens that are willing to sell out their their species in the planet for uh you know for fun and profit Maybe discuss maybe discuss within the movie why people would do that kind of a thing, why they would sell each other out for short term gain. The movie doesn't really deal with it. It just sort of like it's like it's mad that that kind of mentality exists and it addresses it, but only in that we're mad that it, that it exists in the first place and then doesn't really deal with anything else.
1: Wait, wait, wait. Are you saying that there are people who are mad that other more successful people? have more money than them and they don't know how they got it but damn it they shouldn't have it
0: i am absolutely saying there are people that are mad that there are other people in this world that are not willing to do the right thing that are do the absolute wrong thing but the wrong thing produces a short-term gain for those individuals
1: one person's wrong is another person's ching
0: yep one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter that's right take that christopher <laughs> rattle <Radulich>, and you <laughs> <laughs> oh, you saw his latest TikTok, did you? Indeed, I did. <laughs> Dude, wait, I thought you were. Uh, oh, you saw it on Instagram. Yes, I did. Okay. No like, no heart. <laughs> uh, no, I don't. I don't usually heart
1: or like the ramblings of crazy madmen, other than if their last name is Piper. Fantastic.
0: Tell me, come to this movie's defense.
1: Okay, so. There's a lot of this movie, kind of like a lot of other of Carpenter's movies, that it's it's aged so well and better than when it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, in the 1980s in the United States, you had very divisive political uh, attitudes towards the era. They were very pro-Reagan people who were behind what he was doing and felt you know, a lot of us groundswell of patriotism based around his campaign and uh, what it focused on. And there were people who thought Reagan was this evil dictator and out to get people's money and oppress people and, and create a super wealthy class. Uh, and so you're talking about attitudes that are even more apparent now with how candidates are marketed and promoted by their respective parties particularly the major two parties, the Democrats and Republicans, where there is no middle ground anymore between the left and the right. You're either very much one, very much the other, or a libertarian and think everybody is out to get somebody. Um, and it's it's apparent now. And if you watch this film, regardless of what side of the fence you sit on, you can see either way this being relatable to that part of it, where you know there are right-wing people who feel that the government is inherently corrupt and selling out their, their uh, you know needs and values and what things should be done a certain way are in order to gain financially. And at the same time, right-wingers feel that Democrats have always had an agenda to oppress minorities by trying to gain their trust and tell them they're looking out for them. And then what they secretly do is just sell out on them and take from them and exploit them. On the left side of things, you believe that government is a big agenda of control for the wealthy to in order to sustain their current hold on the world's wealth and their status and what they seek to gain and feel that they're keeping people oppressed that are already in that scenario and vice versa. If either way of of those points or schools of thought And you watch this movie, you can relate either one to your viewpoint. That's kind of the subtle brilliance of it that I don't even think Carpenter knew he was doing at the time because Carpenter was very left wing and very anti Reagan. But especially now with more of what we know in in the future, it's relatable to both sides on a very, very uh, easy to see level. You know, the glasses reveal the transparency
0: in a lot of ways. Sure. That's what I'm saying. Like, this is this. I'm usually like the anti remake guy. But this is one where I would love to see someone's take on this with a with a bigger budget, some name actors, and a real focus on the themes. I,
1: I would, I'd be very, I would be very very nitpicky about it, no matter what, because of how much I love this one. But it's something worth revisiting. Of all the trash we've seen remade, this would be something that could be very workable and doable with a fresher take on it, you know, and uh, uh, more. More material to work with and a beta version to see where the flaws <clears throat> of the film are.
0: I, I want to think... see, see Aaron Sorkin's They Live. Aaron Sorkin's. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine? Uh, I'm
1: so afraid of that, you know. <laughs> but, but you know, so Sorry to me, the entire
0: cast of the newsroom. <laughs> I'm out, I'm <laughs> out everybody.
1: Um, no, but I, I think that's a huge part of what makes this film still so relevant at why it's become such a bigger cult favorite over the years. Um, and I think that's its biggest selling point, part one. Part two, for as lackadaisical and non-existent as any chemistry of any kind was between Roddy and Meg Foster, I think Roddy and Keith David play off each other really well, where uh-huh. it, it's very much in a lot of ways like a wrestling match, where you have somebody who has uh, a lot of charisma about them, but doesn't have the tools to do the job and be a good carpenter in that instance and needs the carpenter to help them build. In this
0: instance, Keith... Keith even gives the best performance of anyone in this movie.
1: Yeah, and Carpenter loved working with him on the thing, which is why he wanted to get him in something else. And this was the best opportunity he saw. And it it got to feature Keith in a prominent role that he hadn't really had the likes of before, where he's Mm -hmm. essentially a co-lead of this movie. His character has the second most screen time of anybody in it. And I think he gets the chance to shine by doing what he does with Roddy. He still comes off as a professional actor versus a wrestler Mm -hmm. dabbling in acting, which is how Roddy is seen. And he gets a lot of credibility for his parts with Roddy, with the physicality, uh, with the believability in that instance. Again, the six minute alley fight. Some people say, boo, I say, yeah, this is amazing. That was as great a cinematic fight as you'll ever see because a lot of it was very gritty and they're they're really working each other over. And there's a lot of times in that fight rehearsal that I, they slipped and accidentally it, made some contact.
0: Objection, Your Honor. No one is saying it's not a great fight. It's way too long. You can you can have that same impact, that same grittiness, that same potatoing of each other, and you can do it in three minutes. I Cut
1: ask you I it. ask you this.
0: Would you cut that fight down to two
1: and a half to three minutes in order to get more interplay from Roddy and Meg Foster? Absolutely not. All right. Thank you, sir. No further questions. <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh, you know, it it, it gets – it's again, it's a very smart gimmick to get Roddy's selling point to people in the movie, mm-hmm. which is Roddy's physicality and ability to tell a story with his body in this fight like he does with Keith David and and shout out to Keith David for holding up his end of this too, man. He was there for it. And again, a a lot of movie (laughs) fights, especially in, in Carpenter's last few movies, like, you know, big trouble in little China rocks. It's amazing. Oh, it's great. But not the most realistic of fight scenes with flying ancient ninjas and mummies and wildebeest hanging on the Kurt Russell's truck at the end of the movie and all that stuff. This one, we had a gritty street fight where they start rolling around and kneeing each other in the balls repeatedly like you would. And, <laughs> you know, they even make you laugh during it where Frank accidentally breaks his car window, and you see Roddy kind of, <laughs> as he does it, oh, I'm sorry, man. <laughs> and they just start rolling into it again. Um, I think
0: the other one where he, like, goes off in the handshake just knees him right in the nuts.
1: I told you. I didn't want to be involved. Boom. <laughs> um, so I, I, I think those guys had pretty good chemistry together, both in a physical sense from the fight, but I also think they played well off of each other. I think for as, as, even though Roddy had done three films to this point, two of them in the last year, he's still very new at this. And he's been put into a lead role already twice, once in our, our previous entry in, you know, Hell Comes to Frog <laughs> Town. And another that's not really a big stretch of his acting ability either in Body Slam, where he plays a traveling professional wrestler. Um so this is Roddy's first real challenge as an actor, right? Um, and I, well, again, I don't, I don't think he necessarily gives the best performance. You know, this isn't Stallone locking into Rocky Balboa and really channeling something and finding lightning in a bottle. I think he's good enough, and I think for what they want him to be, it works. Because also, you don't want to have an immediately identifiable presence as such as an actor with this character. If you if you bring this guy in, and let's say. Kurt Russell's playing John Nada. You've kind of already made your mind up about a lot of things in this, right?
0: You know, it's funny. It's funny you bring up Kurt Russell because I just watched him in Death Proof earlier today. <laughs>
1: Is it and my I was, scar?
0: <laughs> and it was actually... And then you bring up Big Trouble in Little China. Kurt Russell, I think, brings a different presence to this role. I'm not entirely sure it brings the right presence because I actually think Roddy Piper... I think Roddy Piper has because he's not a strong actor and they don't give him as much dialogue and you know there's a lot of him using his physical presence in every scene versus him having you know him having to act. I actually think it works for that character. That character is supposed to be almost an avatar that you can project yourself into. Yes. There's a reason why he's a, he's a no-name drifter. Yeah. That all works and I think and so I think you even, want even more the of a scripted name. Presence. Not <clears throat> him. you're nothing I think, um, I, I think Roddy Piper actually worked really, really well in the role. But my issues with Piper is... I have to call out that he's not a good actor in this, but I'm okay with it. I think it actually serves the part fairly well. Again, my issues with this movie are not Keith David or not Roddy Piper. Mike Foster sucks. Um, and some there's some pacing issues and some structure issues here and there. But I think for the most part, there's sound bones to this movie. I just... There, I I think another pass through editing is probably like my biggest like. It it needs another it needed another pass through editing before the final cut got printed.
1: And, and Carpenter is always one of those guys who's notorious on doing a lot of the editing himself. Yeah, and... so um,
0: so a lot of his babies get capped, and this is my this has been my issue this whole year with you know Robert and I have talked about how. The lack of collaboration in film now is leading to a lot of vanity projects and a lot of babies being left on screen that didn't need to be there
1: right and and like you know there's part of it where he writes this part where roddy and keith keith david are in the hotel room and roddy kind of talks about his past a little Mm -hmm. bit and how you know his dad held a razor to him and he's saying daddy please why you know and it's supposed to be this big emotional moment that really strips this guy down as he's not some larger than life you know arnold or sly action hero He's a regular guy caught up in something way over his head, and he's just a person and he's breaking down and can't handle shit. Mm-hmm. And it's just Roddy doesn't have the ability yet at this point in time as an actor to really seem vulnerable mm-hmm. like that. hmm And it doesn't help that he is legitimately six foot two and probably at this time weighs around like 20, 220, 225 of pretty <laughs> solid muscle. And he wears pants that are tighter than you know <laughs> some of Prince's on stage outfits. Uh, but it's almost kind of like uh, they wanted a vibe somewhere between Kurt Russell's cool from like a Big Trouble in Little China, yeah, and Charles Bronson's kind of grim is Paul Kersey from Death Wish, and they he never really finds the balance for it.
0: Yeah, and I'm not entirely the, sure. The John Carpenter, I'm not even sure John Carpenter knew what he was looking for, because because I can see there being an argument for where well, we brought this wrestler in these louder than life wrestlers, these Hulk Hogan types. That's what we want him to be but then you wrote him a character that's not that's that's not what that should be that character should be blending not being not being explosive or you know um you know sucking the air out of the room getting attention you want him to be nondescript and i can see where piper was like struggling with like i don't understand this character is one way but you're directing me another way
1: yeah it almost i and it almost kind of seems like carpenter had this idea for this character in mind, but the more he knew and got to know Roddy, he decides to make the character Roddy. Mm. Whether that's based on him just liking Roddy's background, feeling Roddy's better suited to carry that out than he is to actually have to act out this this part as it's written. Yeah. Whatever the case may be, he loses balance there. I agree. The pacing, yes, there's it's definitely got some issues where – Every, you know, the the general script writing process is every 10 minutes of time you want an action beat, something to move the story along. Right. The first 40 minutes, you're lacking that heavily. Yep. But the climax as it's written, that last half hour, 40 minutes is very much action beats every six, seven minutes to try to make up for that.
0: Right. But Not the least
1: of which is, is the six minute alley fight.
0: Right, but but again, that goes to pacing. It's kind of like being on a roller coaster where the whole thing is just it's like a three or four minute coaster and three minutes 30 seconds is the buildup. The last 30 seconds you're down and going through a loop-de-loop. And you're well, like Wait, definitely, we're done here.
1: Yeah, it's it's definitely uneven in that respect.
0: Yeah. And,
1: and as hard as, you know, for somebody somebody watching it specifically, I want to see Roddy Roddy shoot aliens. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> You know, it's definitely going to be a pacing issue for you. Like,
0: I loved this movie as a kid because it was Roddy Piper in a real movie. Like, this is something that didn't happen. Yeah. And look, let me ask you a question: If you if you ever watched it like VHS, did you fast forward immediately to the bank scene, start watching it from there? Of course, because that's what you want to
1: see. And I think Carpenter. I think Carpenter's biggest flaw in this is is overestimating the ability of any audience to stay looped in without these action scenes into keep them going. So I'll agree that like it's definitely got its issues on that, but do I think it makes up for it on the back end of things? I yeah, I do think the back end is enough to do that. You know, a six-year-old kid's not going to have the biggest attention span for anything, let alone right. you know, thirty to forty minutes of character build and and, and scene setting.
0: I to get you know, to I this wa- part. You know, I watch a lot of movies with my kids, and I you know I I, I make them <laughs> I make them watch. I think the stuff that you know has cultural value to it, you know. Like, oh, watch this movie. It was important to Dude, film.
1: I had my nine-year-old nephew watch Predator, and he thought it sucked and couldn't get through the first 25 minutes of it.
0: Yeah, they don't make kids like they used to. Um, oh, but I, could, I couldn't I could show them. I, I would have to start it at the bank scene. I, because no kid sitting through that 40 minutes of them just... <coughs> you getting associated with the homeless people. Like, I see the value in it. here's the thing you only need 10 minutes i said this before you only need 10 minutes to get to know the homeless before you run them over with tractors and then you know and now roddy's got something to fight for like it i think that in in constructing the script for this you're right i think they they assume people's attention span would be kept long enough and you know and wait and like like i said as a kid you're just so excited by the time you get to the bank scene, you don't really care about anything else. You're not really thinking about it critically. But as I as I watch this as a film person, I was like, "Wow, like they overestimated the audience's ability to stay invested." Because by the time I got to the bank scene, I was like, "How much longer is this movie?" Well, that that's the funny part too. Is like it, mm-hmm.
1: again, it used to air a lot when I was a kid, and you'd always want to pick it up right at the bank scene where all of a sudden you know shit's real. Yeah. And, uh, or at, or at the very least, when he first finds the glasses and figures right. out what they do. Um, but then, you know, as in, a, you know, maybe you catch it years later. Like, I remember not seeing this movie from the time I was about like seven until I was a junior in high school. Mm-hmm. So that's a long period of time and maturation over that point in time. And I remember it was the night before I was taking the SATs and they were airing it on AMC. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, suffice to say, I grew up very poor. I needed a pretty high SAT score to get a scholarship to go to college, et cetera. Um, so I was playing with my, my fate a little bit because I decided it was more important to see this movie that I hadn't seen in a long time and stay up till two in the morning to watch it, and, you know, take a test at seven the next day, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, so I, 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 remember not seeing it. And then I remember like, I'm being hyped up, like, oh my gosh, they're playing it. Cause it was, this was a hard movie to find for a long time. It was out of print in VHS. There was no DVD. You had to go on eBay to try to find like pirated copies of it that would cost you like 90 bucks, which is crazy. Um, But then I saw it again for the first time And I saw it, it was blocked for two and a half Hours on AMC and that's a long time And like I don't remember that movie being This long right and then again You get to the initial stages where they're Introducing him at you know speaking to the Job agency and just walking Through town seeing these sites and You know when he makes it to the shanty town and all This stuff tells get, kick him out of the construction Site for sleeping there and you're like There's a lot I don't remember about This I don't remember it taking this long to chew bubble gum and kick ass. <laughs> now, again, once you start chewing bubble gum and kicking ass, it's, yeah, we're on this rocks. Okay. And you, you know, every five minutes, there's something new. <coughs> boom, 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 boom. But you know, again, I, I think Carpenter, that's one of his large hallmarks. Cause even, even in other movies where he has a little more coherency and f- filling in the plot, like again, we'll reference escape from New York. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: You know, there's a lot of introduction there with what Snake is, the deal that he's made to do this and
0: go behind the lines. And- yeah, there's some world building it's- that has to take place with Escape from New York. I don't know this one needed as much world building. Or yeah, if you're going to do that kind of world building and you're going to take some time, let, so let's leave the pacing as it is. Let's leave the structure as it is. We needed to know more about the aliens. The, the prob- I think one of the problems with this movie is that when he puts the glasses on, it's like, oh my god, the big reveal. Maybe... Don't do it that way then. Because you know you already know going into this movie. The, the you, you know going into this movie, Roddy Piper, this is about Roddy Piper shooting aliens. You know they're aliens. There's no surprise here. Maybe introduce the aliens a little bit sooner and what their nefarious plot is. Like most, I think most action movies, most movies involving a villain of sorts, an antagonist, you know what the antagonist's plan is in the first act. You don't really, you don't get that until like midway through act two in this one. Yeah. But,
1: but I also, again, I don't think that's necessarily just this film for John Carpenter. I think it's in his less critically loved movies. Um, this is a big criticism that we see a lot of the time. Um, uh, what is it? Uh, Ghost from Mars was like the last like real big movie he did. And mm-hmm. that was a big criticism of Ghosts of Mars. Um the other one that I think was actually uh, it, it's a great concept, but it's executed kind of man, uh, in the mouth of madness. I don't know if you remember that one. Um, again, lots of world building through the majority of John's career. The only the only movies we really don't don't get a ton of world building that he's done are uh, Halloween
0: and The Thing. To be honest, because mm-hmm. um, The Thing, you're just in a remote Arctic mm-hmm. Boom, there you go. I'm going to throw two movies at you that I think have like a perfect structure to them. Ghostbusters and Superman three. So Su- Superman three. Okay. We meet Gus at the beginning and, you know, and he's turned down at a job. And then, and so we, so we know that when then the next time we see him, he's down on his luck. He's, he's, he is ripe for being taken advantage of by the big villain of the movie. And after we meet Gus, it goes into the credit scene where it's the big Rue Goldbar. bar Uh, beginning where you know things are falling and people are going into manholes and this paint everywhere you know the whole co- comedic beginning of Superman 3 Ghostbusters very similar you have r- what as the, the the movie opens you meet the librarian and the librarian ghost and all of that and then we're right into meeting our 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 heroes and when they're introduced they're slubs and they're almost immediately fired and having to very quickly figure out what their next plan is going to be Okay, after, they, so, after they go check out the library.
1: So while you're trying to tell all aspiring young musicians out there that they should listen to She Loves You by the Beatles and think that that's <laughs> the ultimate song structure, there's some of us out there who are listening to Brian Wilson's arrangements and telling you that there's not just
0: one way to do something. There's not just one right way. Okay, Daniel LaRusso? <laughs> okay, I'm not saying there's only one white rated, white that. If it ain't white, it ain't right. Right way to, to do something um i'm just saying there are some tried and true methods that when you're that when you're dealing something that might be a little unwieldy that's very thematic uh, in nature maybe some of the tried and true structures would be better off
1: maybe but again you're talking about john carpenter and carpenter has a Mm -hmm. very particular style of how he does things and again like i'm saying parts of these stories that he's come through and, and developed and directed Some of them he didn't really go through a ton of world building, but it's very Mm -hmm. rare. And and Mm -hmm. ironically enough, they're arguably his probably two most critically successful works in the original Halloween and The Thing, where he does a lot of world building and structure, where he creates these elaborate scenarios like in They Live, In Escape from New York, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Assault on Precinct 13. Um, you, You look at those, and yes, it's a lot of structure and setup. I think that this isn't as well executed as uh, as, as uh, Escape from New York.
0: You know, you know who, you know, what another movie that does a lot of a lot of world building really, really well, but does it in a way that it keeps you engaged and people could take a lesson from first Harry Potter
1: movie. I see. I can't. I can't speak to that because I haven't seen any of them. So, okay.
0: so I'm a lot of word for it. A lot of the first Harry Potter is just setting up what the school is and how it works and how it operates. But within that, there's stuff happening. There's a lot going on. It's it's a little frenetic. Um, right. so, so if you're watching, you know, like any one of the Marvel movies. Um, <clears throat> well, the, I, w- I
1: was even going to say that even in this, there's a lot of stuff that could be going on as you get these mm-hmm. follow throughs with, with following, you know, the character of John Nada around. Mm-hmm. And you don't. You just get that, boo-doo, boo-doo, that
0: right. like,
1: you know, slow score and Roddy just kind of walking or, you know, whatever. And meanwhile, while this whole capitalism thing is going on with the aliens or whatever you want to call it, uh, you could be cutting to things of, you know, seeing people signing over, you know, deeds to houses and right. plants being shut down and things of that nature to really speed up the world building, uh, or, or at least paint the narrative of what's really going around. You intersperse that with scenes of, you know, people sleeping outside or in boxes, right. etc. cetera. Um, yeah, and I, yeah, I think that could be done a little better. But also when you're thinking of again the conception time of this movie, Carpenter making it because he knew he could and wouldn't have much in the way of interference because of the deal he had locked in with Universal at the time for distribution, it's very much you gotta understand this is Carpenter doing things Carpenter wants to do with nobody to stop him. And anytime you have a movie like that where you're allowed to be self-indulgent, a lot of people are. And Despite that, I think somebody just tipped him off to the second half and was like, John, this is a tale of two movies. You have a disparate, boring, foreign film following a protagonist without a narrative for the first 40 minutes.
0: Mm-hmm. And in
1: the second 40 minutes, you've got just a straight up actioner of blowing stuff up. you got to kind of make this past stitch a little better. And Carpenter either just overestimated what his audience was going to relate to in this and, and understand didn't understand maybe who he was marketing to because yeah. if you're selling points for this is Roddy Piper, his audience is not necessarily going to latch on to what you're trying to paint to begin with. And even if you're appealing to your own fans, again, you're taking hallmarks of a lot of things they've kind of called you out on and still putting them in and trying to win them over your way. And it's something Carpenter never got away from. I think this is better executed than a lot of the stuff he does later, like in the mouth of madness, uh, goes to Mars, uh, his very bad Village of the Damned uh, remake. I don't know if you saw that with Christopher Reeve.
0: Um, no, I have not.
1: Okay. It's, it's Christopher Reeve and Kirstie Alley, um, but it's Village of the Damned, you know, with the kids with the platinum hair and everything. Okay. Um, and in that one, as much as he tries to set, he, he, it's, just, it's a narrative thing with Carpenter where he's not great at starting that and doesn't know where to begin kind of and go. He knows where he has to go, but he has trouble getting there and it's something he never overcovered. He never uh, overcomes really in his writing and directing. But at least with this the painting of the world they're trying to create isn't super out of
0: left field until yeah, you see they're not, they're not trying to create fucking Asgard.
1: Yeah, they're they're you know, you're talking about a country that's seen a great depression and has people from who lived through that still going to the movies and seeing these pictures and understanding mm-hmm. what potential that could come from or a lot of people from you know parts of eastern europe after world war ii and
0: when it had collapsed and i mean let's not negate let's not forget the the recent history of poverty that was just in the 70s you know the coming out of the vietnam war the, you know and the the, the great malaise this it's the whole thing that got reagan elected in the first place was during the carter years there was a lot of poverty like um the family guy family guy through the years where they show like the 50s the 60s and the 70s and like the opening to family guy of the 70s look you know it's like new york city like trash like blowing in the breeze and you know homeless in the street and all of that and it's very sad music it's because it's what a lot of what the country was dealing with so it's like you know in 1988 you know, deep poverty was not something people were like utterly unfamiliar with you at least saw it on the news yeah you know, so- all right, I'm going to ask you to, for your final words here, your, your, uh, your, closing, uh, your closing argument, as it were. If
1: there's something greater that a film can provide over years as opposed to entertainment than anything else, it's probably relevance. How relevant mm-hmm. does this film stay or speak or become more of as time goes on? And I think this is maybe the best example of a movie that's that was relevant when it happened, although not to as many people and has gotten more and more relevant as time has has gone on, Uh, maybe based more on anything else than human nature
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and just continuing in a pattern that we've been in for a long time. Uh, Humans by nature are confrontational. Humans by nature are determined to believe that what they are doing is right. And you have both ends of that displayed here. You have two different uh, philosophical points of view that can be seen as the protagonist in this movie based on what you believe. Mm -hmm. It has enough entertainment value in terms of catchy one liners, uh, lots and lots of action on the back half to help establish what makes it a little bit different from your standard moral tale or. You know, one of just trying to use uh, some type of uh, far out situation to further exemplify a current situation, much like, you know, you referenced the 50s sci-fi movies. Most of them were in response to the communist threat, things like Invasion of the Body Snatchers. uh, I Married a Communist, uh, you know, all those types of films. And it takes that, plays it a little straighter, even with the sci-fi angle it looks a little grittier and dirtier. So it has a little bit more of a real feel to it. I think it takes a lot of what made those movies fun and what made those movies relevant for their time and updates it to not just the climate that it was made in, but the current climate that still exists today. Mm -hmm. And I think when a movie can offer that type of relevancy and still find a way to entertain a lot of people, it's always going to be something special.
0: All right. Well, I think then um, we're going to, uh, rest these proceedings and we'll pass uh we'll pass judgment here and as for usual on on trial uh whatever side i'm taking wins <laughs> um I, I i think um i think we're <clears throat> i think we're in a we're mostly in agreement where it's like the, the film is not perfect it's that it's it's a cult classic it is a it is a favorite among people uh, who just enjoy this and don't think about it too deeply. But I think to ignore the, the, some of the structural issues, um, I don't. I I don't think. Um, sorry, I think that <clears throat> if you're thinking about the movie, if you're talking about the movie the way we are, it's okay to point out the film is flawed. There are plenty of crowd pleasing cult classic favorite that you can say they're not perfect and it's okay to say that. But if anything, they live gets by on its relevant. It's it's thematic and cultural relevance than anything else. And so with that said, uh, that is our review of they live. I haven't done it on trial in a while. I I sometimes forget some of the lingo I'm supposed to use to uh, play up the courtroom stuff. But um, point of parliamentary procedure. Yes. So this past week, uh, Jesse dropped a, re- a unspoken issues for the Resident Evil comics. Um, where they talk about a writ of habeas corpus. Uh-huh. The uh, We re-aired the Everyone Loves a Bad Guy Halloween special, um, where in the middle of them talking about their favorite Halloween movies, books, and television shows, Sean did a 40-minute rant about whatever was going on in the UFC at the time. Um, so, um, you could always end up listening to Talk to Kiki. There you go. Uh, on Tuesday, we reviewed Pray for the Devil and discussed the long-storied history of exorcisms. Last night, Ronnie Adams and I did a long road to ruin for all three Clerks movies, including the newest one. This weekend, uh, we'll we'll be re-airing our Damn You Hollywood for Avengers Age of Ultron. Jesse's dropping a Rise of the Black Panther review. We'll be doing our very first Metal Hammer of Doom jukebox. Episode one, we'll be looking at the Slipknot, the most recent Slipknot album, since we didn't get a chance to do an actual review of it. Plus, uh, we'll be looking at some videos. That's always going to be fun. Alexis Hano will be doing a review of House of the Dragon. Um, We'll be doing election coverage here in place of You Hollywood. Um, I'll put butts in the seats. And then uh, there'll be an Everyone Loves a Bad Guy for the Marvel Cinematic Universe Part 2. Part 1 was earlier this year when Doctor Strange came out. uh, Or Thor, whichever one. And now we're doing Part 2 with uh, Black Panther coming out. And then Alexis Hano will be back again. And she'll be reviewing Cabinet of Curiosities. Uh, so that's it for the next week and a half, and what happened this week. Pat, you got anything going on? We have something going on fairly soon. We do. We do. I'll talk about that right now, as a matter of fact. Uh, so we're bringing back the boxing show that we did a little ways back. Oh, damn it. Um, we had finished up, we did our heavyweight series, then we did our Four Kings series, and then we said we're going to take a break, and then we're going to come back. With a new, with a brand new history of boxing podcast, where we focus on a particular fight or series of fights between two particular individuals. So we'll be kicking things off uh, in November. The hang on, the end of November, November twenty eighth, with uh, the the nutshots heard around the world, the great nutshot battle of the uh, of the nineteen uh, nineties, Riddick Bowe versus Andrew Galato, one and two. An auspicious start, to say the least. We wanted to hit the high notes, folks. And with that many (laughs) low blows, everybody's hitting the high notes. Uh, December 22nd, right before Christmas, we'll have Gavin Napier on to talk about one of his favorite fights ever. Diego Corrales versus Jose Luis Castillo. January 26th, we'll be looking at Pernell Whitaker versus Julio Cesar Chavez. March 9th, Aaron Pryor versus Alexis Aguelo. March 30th, all four Manny Pacquiao versus Juan Juan Manuel Marquez fights. Not the coffee guy, Mark. (laughs) And then April 27th, uh, the Barrera versus Morales trilogy. So that's what we got going on in the uh, late 2022, early 2023 in the history of boxing. What do you think about that lineup, Pat? I think there's not a single cartoon in the bunch. (laughs) Leave her alone. She does does fine work. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Okay begins with a C and ends with a T. Uh, (laughs) Oh, well, I didn't say that. (laughs) Not this time, pal. All right, so since Pat has nothing else to to plug, check out our... um... Our C-U-N... No. um...
1: (laughs) See you next Tuesday, everybody. We've lost Mark. They've censored him just like they're trying to censor you. But put the glasses on and you'll see what they're trying to do to you.